this morning, I would like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to show you a few verses in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm hoping to share with my classmates this coming Friday, but I think there's something in here for all of us. 1 Corinthians 15, while you're turning there, it'll be on the screen too, but it's also powerful to read along, to turn in your Bible or to power on your device or go to the right app, whatever you need to do. And while you're doing that, let me pray. Lord, would you please bless this message? Uh, Thank you for letting me wrestle with it and rather you wrestling with me. And even as I process it verbally, I pray that you would let it do its work in me. But also, Lord, I pray that you would um, speak to every person here, to those that would watch, be watching online. I always forget about the folks that follow us online until they call or send an email. Lord, I just pray that you'd bless them um, as they're watching. Lord, you have the power to speak wherever we're at, whatever we're doing. So, Lord, I pray that you would. And I just leave it in your court for your power to do. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to show you a few chunks here. First, let's start with verses 1 through 4. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. Do we not have this, Isaiah? I put it up there, or I put it on there. Oh, there it is. Um, were you playing Minecraft? No. No. Um, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. This is verse 3 now. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. That is, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried. Then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now skip forward to verse 13. Jump to verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But in fact... uh, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all things under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay, now move ahead to verse 54. I think I put that on there, didn't I? Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the, mor- and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of death, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labors is not in vain. Okay. Um, There is a phenomenon about life, and I think this is what Paul is getting at, that seems powerless at times. I think um, 
something common to all people is that at some point, maybe in a moment of silence or a moment of honesty or after fatigue or the grind or whatever it is, we have a moment where we say, what is all this for anyway? It doesn't really matter how noble or how mundane your vocation or your endeavors may be. I think at some point, we, when the silence hits, when we allow ourselves to be still enough, we've got to ask ourselves, is this really doing anything? Is this really what life is about? What is life about? I think that's what Paul is getting at today. I want to talk about three things in this passage. One, Paul's interesting take on the definition of life and death. He has a really interesting way of describing life and death. Secondly, the significance of the resurrected life. What does it mean to live a resurrected life? What is the resurrected life? And thirdly, how do we tap into it? Or or maybe I should say, how do we keep tapping into it? How do we live from it? How do we connect with it? Those those three things. I'm sure there's a lot more here, but that's what I want to focus on. Number one, look at how Paul describes life or how he, he um, images that to us. Let me show you verse 13 again. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We of all people are to be most pitied. This is a dynamic that Paul is saying that there is in all of life. And I think really in every purpose, in every action, in every endeavor, at some point at a deep level, we begin to ask these kinds of questions. Um, perhaps uh, Perhaps it's in the emergency room when the doctor has seen someone pass away again that they couldn't save. Or perhaps um, it's when you go through another busy season at work, year after year after year after year after year, that busy season, or maybe they, uh, it's the boss saying it's only for a season, but that season keeps going on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Or when the season comes, they keep using the same language to pep you up to do another season. What is this all for? Or when your kids leave the house, or when you retire and no one cares what you do anymore or how much you know or what, you, or what you've done. Or when you go to church, home group, and pray, and all these things feel sometimes just like part of the grind. On and on and on it goes. That's what Paul is getting at. Paul is saying that one of the effects of death on this life is that it makes it what he calls vain. He uses that word so many times. Um, In other words, Paul is saying, if death has the last word... If there's nothing eternal, nothing that can endure the worst parts of life, even death itself, if death wins, then it washes back over all living acts, over all living things, and makes it vain, he says. Everything that life entails is actually vain if there's nothing else. Vain is the Greek word kenos, um, and it's It's a prominent description throughout this passage. He uses it four times, six times if you count two synonyms that he uses in the Greek. And interestingly, uh, the word word has a wide range of meanings in the Greek language. It's nuanced, but all, all the definitions are kind of parked right along next to each other. They kind of start bleeding into each other. On the one hand, it can mean kind of the Ecclesiastes of the Old Testament way of thinking of vain meaningless. You know, when, the, the, when Solomon says, vanity of vanities, all life is vanity, meaningless. Um, it, but it can also mean powerless. But it specifically refers to something powerless that should be powerful. Something that should be, um, that should be working and yet it's not. That's the idea. Why, it it kind of comes with a feeling that we've all felt 
Why doesn't this work? <laughs> Have you ever worked on something and everything's as it should be, and yet it's still like an engine, and yet it still won't turn over? And you're like, okay, this should have power. This should have the power to move down the road or to, to turn over, and yet it doesn't. That frustrating feeling, it also can mean empty. Also, uh, uh, describing something that should be holding something, and yet it's not. It means useless. Something that should have substance but doesn't. For example, um, in, Phil- in Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, Paul uses the word um, kenodoxia in the Greek. So kenos, keno means empty. Doxa or doxia is glory, empty glory. It's where we get our term vain glory. But glory in the Old Testament means weight or substance. So what Paul's doing here, um, kenodoxia means empty glory, something that should have weight, something that should have substance, and yet it doesn't. That frustrated feeling, it's where we actually get our English, around the fourth century, um, someone made a list of the eight deadly sins, and vanity was one of them. By the 14th century, we, it turned into our idea of someone who is vain, someone who seeks self-glory, someone who's all about self and living for self. We call somebody like that vain. They have a vain life. It's vain glory. And Paul would say it's empty. It's an empty life. Death then, well, this is the word that Paul is using to describe in our passage life and death, or the way I want to put it, describe a life that is death. That's the idea. He's describing life that is actually death. Death then, according to this passage, is a life with no substance. It is life that is missing something. It's a life that's empty. It's strangely powerless. It doesn't have the energy that it ought to have. That's the idea. In the Bible, death happens because we live for self-glory rather than God's glory, resulting in something that should be living and teeming and flourishing and thriving and producing, and yet it's strangely not. It's stagnant. It doesn't have the power to move or change you. That's the idea. So this broadens, obviously, our Western idea of death in purely biological terms. We think of the cessation of processes or being extinct. We think of those types of things. We can see now that it means much, much more than that. It's something that should be alive with meaning but is powerless. So it's, it's limp. So biological death doesn't serve as a definition anymore but rather a helpful metaphor. When you see someone who is dead, you see a corpse that should... The reason that it's so wrong in your heart is it should be alive. It should be up and walking and thriving, but it's not. It's empty. It's powerless. It's dead. That's the idea. On the, um, on the way back from your guys' shindig uh, last Saturday, we came across a motorcycle accident. And Nicole and I, we came, we were just right, we were there before the ambulance showed up and they were applying CPR on somebody who was, who was dead. They passed away. And it was, you know, we, I mean, it just ripped our hearts out. This sense of this should not be, this ought not to be. And for a lot of reasons, but for the most basic reason, there's a, there's a body that should be alive and teeming and affecting others and loving and experiencing and having all this fruit and energy and power, and it's lifeless. It's, it, the, the word that the Bible would use, it's, it's vain. It's vanity. It's something that for all tents and purposes should work but doesn't. Why isn't this working? So in this sense, biological death is useful for a metaphor, but not a definition. That's what Paul is saying life is. Paul is saying that all of life is like a corpse. 
It should be alive, but it's empty. It's powerless. It can't really do anything. And that's kind of how we feel, isn't it? In the grind of life, we go, is this really doing anything? Does this really have life in it? Does this really have substance? I made some big choices in my life that I'm going to pursue meaning in this way and we get after it and we're faithful and we do it and we do it and we do it and we do it and at some point maybe if it's just privately we just go man I hope this is right okay let's bring this in a little close Paul is saying anything done for kenodoxia that is vain glory anything done for self to that degree death has tainted those activities that's what he's saying here. Like a, like, well, let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Like a fly in the ointment, it spoils. Things done for vain glory can spoil really any activity. And seen from this angle, it doesn't really matter what you're doing necessarily. It's why you are doing it that, that provides the quality of that activity. It can either be done, it can be done when it's done for self, it pollutes that activity and makes it death. It makes it stagnant. That means anything um, vanity or vain, anything that vanity or vainglory touches brings death into that life. It's like a lion that roars but has no strength. Um, or let me give you a little, we'll go back to David here. It's like David who's on the throne, he's the king, he should be powerful, and his kids do something, and he just gets mad when they misbehave, but he can't really do anything. You know, Amnon abuses his sister, Tamar, and Absalom, you know, gets, he gets upset. Because, why? Because David got mad. He's the king. He got mad. He got angry, but he didn't ultimately do anything. He's this powerful person, and yet he's impotent. That's the idea. The Bible would say that's death. Death came to David's throne. It's vanity. It's vain. I've seen this when kids discover their parents' secret sins and hypocrisies. Parents and dads who should have authority and influence and power in their children's lives and now are powerless. They get ignored or they roll the eyes, even when they're telling the truth. It just doesn't have the mm anymore, the influence anymore. Or when selfishness rots away at a relationship, husbands and wives can no longer lead each other to some degrees. There's a sense of, yeah, what you're saying is true, but it doesn't really matter. So emptiness doesn't mean inaccurate. This is what frustrates people. Emptiness doesn't mean inaccurate. It doesn't mean untrue. It means powerless. It means empty. It means it, even the truth doesn't have the power to move anymore. It causes death to, to, to a degree. Or the minister who can preach, but it doesn't just, it's missing something. That's the idea. If you look at it that way, then the biblical view of death makes sense. Death, the Bible would say, is everywhere. Like gangrene or like something, like a dynamic in the air. It's to some degrees, to varying degrees in, in everything. When you're feeling that disparity between you and that somebody else, you are feeling death. You can smell it. When you can't seem to get along with that person, just everything just turns into a fight. You can, that's death has crept in to that relationship. When society is breaking down and we're so divided and yelling at each other and um, us versus them and all of that, that is biblically the smell of death that you're feeling. When countries are at war, and on and on and on and on it goes. Death is everywhere. That's what Paul is saying. So, what are we going to do about it? What do we do? Paul says the only hope is a resurrected life. And without resurrection, there is no hope. 
That's what he's saying. Look at verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you of first importance. This is what's going to give you guys life. He's talking to Corinthians. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now notice this. He is giving them something that they've already received and yet they've forgotten. The first verse, verse 1, he says, I want you to remember something. In other words, even Christians, even um, a Christian community like us, we can feel powerless in our church if we forget certain things that we've already received, that we actually intellectually believe, that we've already checked it off our boxes. We can actually come and we can feel powerless. It can feel empty. Even what's true, what should have the power, the gospel that should have the power to move us and change us can become nothing, can become, and he says it himself, he says, even your faith in verse 14 has become futile. It becomes vain if we, were, if we forget if in Forgetting means not keeping it close to who we are. Not letting it affect our soul. The fir- of first importance, he wants us to remind us of the gospel. And particularly, he spends the rest of the chapter exploring the implications of the resurrection. What is resurrection? Well, it's full life. It's a life of substance. It's a life that actually matters. It's what we all are longing for. It's, what, it's the hope of what gets us out of bed in the morning. This is what we're hoping for in all of our endeavors and all the things that we do and our family relationships. We're hoping for a life, a legacy, something that will outlast us, something that is transcendent, something that our kids will remember, something of substance that will last, that will shape, that will move, something of power. That's what we're all looking for. That's what he's saying. That's what it is. It's a life of impact that is the power to move things. It's the stuff of life that death cannot kill. It's something so substantive that death can't extinguish it. So then, resurrected life, mark this, is more about a quality of life rather than a quantity of life. In other words, resurrection is not life going on forever. That's what we tend to think of when we think of eternal life. We think of life that just doesn't end. But it's more than that. It's a kind of life, a quality of life, that can withstand even death. Resurrection life, notice, is not life without death. And this is the key for us and maybe what we don't want to hear. Resurrection life is not life without death. Resurrection life is a life through death. It's a life that endures death. And this is Paul's main point. In order to have this kind of life, like Jesus, we must pass through death first. This is the part that we skip a lot. In other words, Paul is saying that true life is death. Death to the kind of life that the Bible calls death. If that twists your mind at all. True life is death to the kind of life, self-life, that the Bible says is death. That's true life. To have life, we must die to the kind of life that brings death, the selfish life. And if, when you think of that equation, you'll find it everywhere. You find it everywhere in the Bible. Um, let me give you one of the, some of the more, more famous ones. Mark chapter 8. And calling to the crowds, and calling, to the crowd, uh, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus says to everyone, if anyone would come after me, let him come forward at an altar call at a retreat and intellectually believe in these five doctrines that I'm about to tell you. That's, yeah, right? Our, it's so funny how our eyes can just glaze over and fill in some things. Somebody says, and calling the crowd uh, with him, 
or gosh, I can't even read. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him, this is the first thing, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That is Jesus' description of a Christian way of living. For whoever would save his life, me, 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 will lose it, vain, empty, powerless, useless, meaningless. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Do you see the upside down equation here? Death to the life that the Bible calls death. This brings power and life and substance. And this is the part that we don't like to hear. Paul is not saying that we need life. He's saying that we need resurrection life. And the only way to get to resurrection is if you die first. That's the only way. That's, that's by definition, resurrection life is life through death. We can't skip that part. To the degree... So we, this is what we, here's the equation we're working with. To the degree that we live for our own glory, okay? Um, to the degree that we live for our own glory, kinodoxia, to that degree we inject death into anything and everything that we do. It's like we're just injecting it in there. So, likewise, to the degree that we give ourselves for God and others, to that degree, we will inject life, substance, power, meaning into every one of our endeavors. Do you see the equation here? This is the great upside-down way of the kingdom of uh, the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Let me read you another one. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, Asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. And in the Greek, it refers to being linked to it. In other words, they cannot be separated. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the, all the law and the prophets. In other words, what we would call the Old Testament. It's all about these things. What does it mean to be human? A life centered on God and centered on others. That's what it means to be human. To recognize that we live in a universe that by its very nature is about someone else. I am not the star of my show. And to the degree that I can pour myself out and live for God and therefore live for others, to that degree, that is, that's what the Bible describes as the good life. That's a life of substance, a life that means something, a life that will last, a life that's transcendent, a life that will bring impact and movement. This is Jesus' way of saying that the Bible what the Bible has said from the start. We're returning to true humanity at this point. A life centered on the glory of someone else. Therefore, the key to life is to die to the temptation to live for the self. This is really hard in our culture because this is the water we swim in. Everywhere we go, every image of, we have two warring narratives of what the good life is. And our culture says the good life is to conquer and to amass and to, and to, you know, build up our own kingdoms, power, popularity. And we even, in the church, we like to wrap Christian, you know, Christmas paper around all that. So it seems really, you know, I'm doing this for the Lord. But really, in our motive, are we really? In other words, if you want to bring life to your family, if you want to parent your kids with more than just true words like the gospel, 
Parent them from humility and service. Dying to yourself, that will bring substance and power to the words that you say. Maybe not yet, but eventually. Live what you say. Bring a selfless attitude to your actions and words without anything in return. That's where power comes from, without expecting anything in return or demanding anything in return or at least without the motive for anything in return. Don't don't power trip on your kids, exerting power with the motive of helping them, not overpowering them. Use your power to help them, not overpower them. Lead your marriage by sacrificing yourself for your partner or your neighbors or whatever it might be. Serve and give yourself up for one another to the degree that you do this with that kind of a motive. You will find life will start bringing, will come up again. Be this kind of employee. Be this kind of employer. Use your power to stoop to those who are under you. That's the gospel way. You'll, get, you'll give your leadership life. Yeah, Michael. Yes, it is no longer I who live. And it starts out by saying, I am crucified with Christ. This is, Paul uses this to say this is his identity. In other words, this is how he thinks. I am crucified with Christ. What, that's death. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Absolutely. Paul is saying, this is how I now think. This is how I view life. Is I'm going to give life by, because I've got crucifixion within me. He goes on to say, I die every day. In fact, I think it's in this uh, chapter, 15. I die every day. I die daily. He's just following what Jesus said. Take up your cross and die every day. But we can't just end it here or you would be deceived at this point. Because here's the thing. If I were to end the sermon here, you're going to fit into one of two camps. Some of you may be in the camp that thinks that this kind of life is actually possible in your own strength. You might go away going, yeah, that's all right. This is it. This is how we should do it. You'd be the one thinking that you can do it. Like, oh, okay, I just serve everyone. That's what I do. Simple. The problem is that this is not just describing a kind of doing, but a quality or motive that fuels what you're doing. It's not just what you do, it's why you're doing it. And why the why causes what, it gives the quality to what you're doing. You can, you know, we all know this. This is what, why, it's power, why it's things are powerless. You know that you can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Right? Isn't, aren't those the people, I mean, think in your life. The people that you suspect, the people that you tend to tune out, the people that you don't listen to, even when they're telling you the truth. Maybe it's a father who uses the gospel to get his kids to do what they tell him to do. Or a wife that uses the gospel to manipulate the husband. Or whatever it might be. Think of of those people. Why is it hard for you to listen? Because... We suspect, and maybe they're not, but you, you suspect at least that they're doing, they're saying something right with a wrong motive for the wrong reasons. That equals death, powerlessness. That's the idea. People can feel it. They know if your motive is off, or at least they can suspect it. Others of you might feel crushed by this instead of, oh yeah, we can go out and do this. You might rightfully feel crushed, like there's just no way I can live up to that. And that's, you're closer. That's the right feeling. When you read the words of Christ and you look at the Bible, you, all of us should feel this sense of, oh man, I'm not cut out to follow Jesus. <laughs> if you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you read the words of Jesus, if you read what Paul is saying here, there is a sense of, Oh my gosh, I did not know the bar was that high. Not just what I do, but why I do it from a place of, this is an inside-out situation. And that's what Paul's getting at next. Notice the order here. In verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And look at the order. He says, the first fruits who have fallen asleep. 
For as by one man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then at the end when he delivers the kingdom to, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Who was raised first? Jesus. That's the idea. And to the degree that you, verse 1, remember that, remember that Jesus rose for you, that he died for you, that he rose for you, to that degree will you be able to do the same and follow the same pattern for others. In other words, the story of the gospel has first got to light up your own heart so that it's natural, so that it's real, that it's from a place of strength, not for more strength. That's the idea, that this kind of living comes from life, not to get life. And we know when the order is all messed up. Usually it's a priority issue. When we say something that's true in order to restore a relationship or in order to get someone to do something we know is good for them, like our kids or whatever it might be, what we're doing is we're trying to get life into that situation rather than from life just pouring into it. That's, the order is so important. That's why he says Remember this. Let it light up your own mind. How do you remember it? Well, by doing this, by coming together and talking about it. Sundays, being reminded of it. At lunch, talking about it. What does resurrection mean? It means living a selfless life. The gospel that Jesus conquered death. And you know, this is the only thing that makes Christianity diff different. You know, there are a lot of religions. Um, most of the major world religions will tell you that selfishness is what's wrong with the world, and therefore we need to be selfless. Hinduism, for example, it's great indictment on humanity that's, fall, that's making society fall apart. Their answer to war and poverty and all these other things would be the selfishness that's in the heart of man. And therefore, they would say, the more selfless you can be, the better this healing will come into this world. What makes Christianity different? The order. Other religions will start with, you go do this. It'd be like if I ended with point two. This is what we do, now go do it. That would start from the wrong order. Christianity says, no, wait. Remember that someone did it, and let the story get your own heart, that someone did it for you first. Let me read this to you. This is Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind in yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Mind means, um, it doesn't mean your brain. It means your worldview or your ethos, your purpose, the way you look at the world, what you've oriented your purpose around, and what fires your actions and everything else. That's what it's talking about. He says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with, with God as something to be grasped. But, are you ready? Here's our word. But Jesus emptied himself. Kenosis. The same word. He emptied himself. He made himself powerless. Here's God. King. Phenomenal. Cosmic. Unlimited power. Emptied out. On the cross, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, so that's the crucifixion part, therefore God has highly exalted him. That's the resurrection. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see it there? That's, see, a lot of religions believe that selflessness is the answer. The problem is they say, you just go out and be selfless. A Christian says, I can't. 
But someone did that for me. Someone did what I could not do for myself. And now how can I not? How can I not when someone has done that for me? Um, This is the natural way of things. Gift giving. You know that. Um, Do you understand that grace, theologically anyway, biblically anyway, grace does not mean not getting something in return. Did you know that? Throughout the Bible, God demands our loyalty. Throughout the Bible, God demands our loyalty. God demands that His grace will do something in us. Absolutely. And if it doesn't, what does James say? He goes, if you don't have any works with your faith, then your faith is dead. It's not there. In other words, you didn't really receive it. What... What do you do when someone gives you a gift? You think, I didn't get you a gift, right? And we want to give back. What do you do when you see someone smile at you? Most of the time, anyway, you smile back. Even yawning, if I was to yawn right now, I wonder how many of you would start yawning. (laughs) There is a reciprocal social type of an idea. It doesn't mean it's not grace. Grace means undeserved, unmerited favor. That's what it means. And God gives you undeserved, unmerited favor. And absolutely, if, it's doing, if it does its work, you're going to respond. That's the idea here. God sent his son and emptied himself out on the cross for you. Unmerited, undeserved favor. And to the degree that that really touches you, you will want to give back. You won't be able to help it. You'll start looking at your marriage that way. You'll start looking at your coworkers that way. You'll start parenting that way. The more you remember and are touched with your, in your heart the grace that's been poured out on you. And this is, that is the good life indeed. There is only one response to that kind of a gift. It's a life that glorifies him. It's a life that glorifies him. A life emptied out for him. When we see that he emptied out his life for us. When we re- and I mean when we really see it. Not just intellectually get it. Oh, I get it. I get how the theology of it works. He, he substituted himself for me. No, no, that's great. But when, you, when it touches you personally. I was vain, powerless, a corpse that should be alive but's not. And he came and switched with me so that I can have this life in me. The only response to that is to say, I want to live my life for you. I want to give it up for you. I want to die for your glory. And that is the good life indeed. Christianity is an inside-out religion. And it will, it, will not, it will not work any other way. You cannot skip this step. You can't. It has to be in that order. And not by a way of shaming us, but by, by doing a kind of a self-diagnostic test on you. When you see death in your life, when you see, you can work it backwards. And you'll go to, okay, I'm being selfish, not selfless. But don't stop there. Keep working backwards. Why are you being selfish? Well, to some degree or some level, you've you've forgotten something. That someone did something for you. Someone gave something for you that was so precious and so powerful. Meditate on it. Remember how dead you were. Remember how lost you were. Remember how helpless, like, and use your imagination. I honestly believe that one of our biggest problems in the West is we have an atrophied imagination when it comes to the Bible. We, we've intellectualized things so much, which is good. The, the, the Bible is an intellectual, it's intellectually coherent, absolutely. But we, we conceptualize abstract things rather than imagining something. What, what stories grip you the most? I always tell the story of Saving Private Ryan, the, the film, where people gave their lives for this guy. 
I don't want to spoil it, but I probably, I'm going to spoil it. If you haven't seen it at this point, it's kind of, it's kind of your bad, okay? Saving Private Ryan is about, um, it's about a family in World War II. All the brothers went to war, and all of them died except for one. And, and according to U.S. tradition and U.S. law, if all of the siblings died in a war, the remaining sibling gets to go home to preserve that family. And so all of the Ryans died except for one, and he's somewhere in the middle of France. And so they send a troop or a battalion or whatever you call a group of guys um, led by, and their one mission is not to kill Hitler. or it's, it's basically a parenthesis. You are called to find this guy, go into France and find this guy and extract him because he gets to go home. And in the process to find this guy that they don't even know, many of them perish, many of them die. And they finally find him, and at the end, they're, they're in this huge entrenched battle. They're trying to get him out of there, and the captain of their group gets shot in the chest, and he's going to die. He's played by Tim, Tom Hanks. And Private Ryan comes up to him. The battle's over, and they win, and Private Ryan comes up to him, and, he's tr- and Tom Hanks is trying to say something to him. And he, he gets down to hear what he's trying to say. And Tom Hanks says, earn this. Earn this. And then it goes forward in time to where Private Ryan is a man, an old man, at Arlington National Cemetery next to his wife. He's got tears in his eyes and he's looking at the, he found the tombstones of the men that gave their lives for him. And he says to his wife, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've lived a worthy life. That's an image that captures your imagination, that gripped, that has the power to move you forward. Private Ryan, that was the power that moved him to a powerful life, was that he knew someone gave it up for him, and he never, he, how could he forget? I get to be with my wife because four men get, are without their wives. I get to raise my kids because four men cannot raise their kids. I get to smile and smell these roses and eat this meal because there's men that can't. I mean, you have to imagine, it would taint everything. Every, like, uh, every part of his life would be touched by this image. I'm breathing. I mean, how would that change? Even if you get, the, the, you get the wrong order at a restaurant, would you be grumpy still? I don't even get to be, I shouldn't even be here. The only reason I'm here is because four people are not. I'll just, it's okay, I'll, I'll eat whatever. Everything's a gift. Everything's a gift. It's a powerful life. That is the Christian life. And you only get that through remembering and through imagining yourself. Imagine yourself as a corpse, lifeless, powerless. And imagine the one with all power emptied himself out to pour power into you. To the degree that you can can let that light you up that you can let the Holy Spirit change that in your heart to that degree, it will, your Christianity will touch every part of your life. Your parenting, your marriage, your employment, your, if you're a boss, everything. It'll change everything. And that's why we take communion, what we're gonna do now. It's a way to remember. Remember what he said? Eat this in remembrance of me. When the Bible is talking about remembering, he's not talking about remembering an intellectual doctrine. He's saying, let your imagination fight. Remember what it felt like to be lost. When you take communion, remember what it felt like to be without hope. Lean into your death. Let Smell the death again. Remember what it felt like to not be able to change. Remember all your broken promises. Remember what you said you'd do, but you couldn't do it. Remember all those things. 
Remember the people that you hurt. Remember that their faces contorted with tears going, how could you have done that to me? Remember all of those things. And then remember, think of the cross. Picture Jesus saying to you, I'd rather die than live without you. I can't forget you. How can I give you up, O Ephraim, he says in Hosea chapter 11. How can I give you up? I have to come for you. In Isaiah, can a, can a mother forget her nursing child? Even if I will never forget you, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Think of those things. I've borne you like eagle's wings, Exodus chapter 19. I've saved you because I love you. Ezekiel, I found you in a field, abandoned, no one loved you, covered in blood. I scooped you up, I adopted you, I cleaned you off, I adorned you, I toddled you around while you were learning to walk. I did, these are images. These are supposed to evoke your imagination. These are not just dry doctrines. They're doctrines meant to fire your heart and fire your imagination and let the Holy Spirit do its work inside of you, do His work in you. Stir it up. Hebrews 10 says, stir up one another. Stir this up. And that's what communion is supposed to be. Did you know, did you know, and I'll, I'll stop, that even this tonight, today, could be vain? How many times do we week after week come up here and it just has no power? We believe it. We do believe it. We agree with it. But it's just what we do. It should, it should move you. It's an image. He said, this is my body. Broken for you. Crushed for you. Remember. This is my blood. Kenosis for you. Poured out for you. It's supposed to get you. See what I'm saying? Remember what this is. Talk about it. Talk about it with your family in this way. Not from a motive of whatever, just to empty yourself, to stir each other up. And we'll have power in our lives again.